All right, well, uh, go ahead and take your Bibles and make your way back to 1 Corinthians if you haven't already. 1 Corinthians chapter 4. If you're new uh, and visiting, we've been walking through this um, book slowly but surely. Uh, a few verses at a time. We'll do the same uh, tonight. 1 Corinthians 4 is our text. Full, full disclosure, I set out to... Uh, to cover 6 through 13, and that's not going to happen. So um, we're going to do two verses, okay? Uh, verses 6 and 7. But uh, as, you're, as you're making your way there, I, wanna, I, wanna consider, I want you to consider with me how you would answer the question uh, if someone asked you, are you a proud person? Do you struggle with pride? In other words, are you humble? You could ask the opposite, right? How do you, how do you evaluate yourself in that? I mean, that's difficult, isn't it? Um, how do you know if you're proud? Because that can be a hard question to answer um, if we're honest. Because proud people don't normally think of themselves as being proud, right? That's part of the dilemma, isn't it? If you're proud, you, you typically don't admit that or you don't know it. Um, in fact, Stuart Scott, I'm going to reference this book um, or this little booklet a couple times tonight. Um, uh, From Pride to Humility. He, he says this, he reminds us that pride is blinding. Uh, th- this fact is why it is often difficult, he says, to see pride in ourselves and yet so easy to see it in others. Don't you find that to be true? I do. Um, likewise, in C.J. Mahaney's little book, uh, Humility, he writes this, Pride seems to have a strange and sure way of ignoring logic altogether. The sad fact is that none of us are immune to the logic-defying, blinding effects of pride. Though it shows up in different forms and to differing degrees, it infects us all. The real issue here is not if pride exists in your heart, it's where pride exists and how pride is being expressed in your life. Scripture shows us that pride is strongly and dangerously rooted in all our lives, he says, for far more than most of us care to admit or even think about. John Stott, he writes, was clearly, has clearly thought about this and wrote the following, quote, At every stage of our Christian development and in every sphere of our Christian discipleship, pride is the greatest enemy and humility our greatest friend, end quote. And as you search the scriptures, maybe you've studied the issue before, you will find that this is certainly the case um, throughout the Bible in the book of Proverbs. Um, of all the things that we read that God hates, pride, as you know, is at the top of that list, Proverbs six, sixteen, and 17. And twice... Uh, in the New Testament, James 4, verse 6, 1 Peter 5, verse 5, the New Testament repeats this idea that God is opposed to the proud. 
but gives grace to the humble. In fact, you know, one of my dear mentors who's now with the Lord, Dr. Zemek, used to say um, when he was asked by another professor, how would you succinctly summarize the theme of Scripture? This is what he said. God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. But you could ask the question, you know, why, why does God hate pride so much? Ever wonder that? You know, did you just sort of arbitrarily pick this particular sin and vice? I mean, in other words, you, you, others have actually observed as well that pride was actually the first sin ever committed, right, by Satan who fell even prior to the garden. And they've also observed that pride is, in one sense or another, at the heart and root of every sin. So the first sin and at the root of every sin. But why why does God hate pride so much? We ask Mahaney again, listen to what he says. His answer is this, pride, because pride is when sinful human beings aspire to the status and position of God and refuse to acknowledge their dependence on Him. That's how C.J. Mahaney describes or defines pride, or to put it even more concisely, Thomas Watson once said this, pride seeks to un-God God. And I think that's right. So if all of that's true, and it is, look, as Christians, think about this. This is what we're going to talk about tonight. We should be striving in every area of our life to fight the sin of pride. And as we've already heard, the question isn't, are we proud? The question isn't, do we struggle with pride? The question is, where and when? As I said in the beginning, though, it, it, can, it can be hard to spot, though, isn't it? it? It can be hard to pinpoint. It can be hard to diagnose when we're looking at ourselves. And, and not only that, even when we do see it at times and identify it rightly in our lives, the, the very presence itself of pride can make it difficult to admit and then confess. <laughs> that's, the, the, that's the challenge, right? And there are so many expressions So many manifestations of pride. In fact, Stuart Scott here in this book, he lists about, let's see, uh, 30 expressions, 30 manifestations of pride. I'll I'll just give you some. Complaining against or passing judgment on God. A a lack of gratitude in general. Anger. Seeing yourself as better than others. Having an inflated view of your importance, gifts, and abilities. Being focused on the lack of your gifts and abilities. Perfectionism, talking too much, talking too much about yourself, seeking independence or control, being consumed with what others think, being devastated or angered by criticism, being sarcastic, hurtful, and degrading, a lack of service, a lack of compassion, being defensive or blame-shifting, a lack of admitting when you're wrong, a lack of asking forgiveness, a lack of biblical prayer, resisting authority and or being disrespectful, almost, almost done, don't worry. Voicing preferences or opinions when not asked. Minimizing your own shortcomings and sins. Maximizing others' sins and shortcomings. Being impatient or irritable with others. Being jealous or envious. Using others 
being deceitful by covering up sins, faults, and mistakes, using attention-getting tactics, or not having close relationships. I mean, that's just a handful of expressions or manifestations of pride. There's so many of them. Well, tonight, why do I bring all of that up? Because tonight our passage is going to help us with this, I think. And in our text, we're going to see some other expressions and manifestations of pride. In fact, in um, this whole section, um, which we'll read here in a minute, even though we're only going to cover the first two verses, in 1 Corinthians 4, 6 through 13, Paul is going to tackle this issue head on in the Corinthian church. And not only is he going to give us ways to diagnose our own hearts, to, to, to see what the problem is, and to, to pick out signs of, and to ask ourselves and to examine ourselves, really, am I proud or where do I struggle and when do I struggle with pride? Um, he's also going to expose for us the absurd nature of pride so that we can learn to hate it and do war with it. So let's, let's read the text together, and then I'll give you an outline sort of for the first two verses to kind of hang your hats on, or thoughts on rather, not your hats. <laughs> let's read this text. Notice, beginning in verse 6, Paul says, Now these things, brethren, I have figuratively applied to myself and Apollos for your sakes, so that in us you may learn not to exceed what is written so that no one of you will become arrogant in behalf of one against the other. There's pride. Verse 7, For who regards you as superior? What, what do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? You're already filled. You've already become rich. You've become kings without us. And indeed, I wish you had become kings so that we also might reign with you. For I think God has exhibited us apostles last of all as men condemned to death. We, because we have become a spectacle to the world, both to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you, you are prudent in Christ. We are weak, but you, you are strong. You are distinguished, but we are without honor. And to this present hour, we are both hungry and thirsty and are poorly clothed, and are roughly treated, and are homeless, and we toil, working with our own hands. When we are reviled, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure. When we are slandered, we try to conciliate. We have become, as the scum of the world, the dregs of all things, even until now. Like I said, we're only going to cover the first two verses, but in case um, you uh, need a bit of a review of where we are in context, of course, we're jumping right in the middle here. Um, you see, we, as we've studied this letter so far, hopefully it's become clear by now, we've already observed and said that really at the heart of most, if not all of the problems in the church at Corinth was this great sin of pride. You remember we've said that even in our introduction, and you've probably seen that in every single one of these chapters that we've been through. But specifically, if you remember from last time, last week when we looked at the first five verses of chapter 4, 
We called it their expression of pride. We called it the pride of horizontal comparison. You remember why? Because the Corinthians were, were battling one another. They were jockeying for position in the church. That was how pride was manifesting itself in their midst. Remember we noted that for the Corinthians, just by way of background and just to remind you, pride for the Corinthians was, 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 was putting itself on grand display in the disputes and quarrels and factions and division um, and disunity within the church. In fact, if you flip back to chapter 1, verses 11 and 12, you'll see Paul introduce the issue in verses, uh, chapter 1, verses 11 and 12, where he says, look, I've heard a report from Chloe's people that there are quarrels among you and that each one of you is saying, I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Cephas, I'm of Christ. That was their problem. In chapter 3, he, he, he calls it jealousy and strife, verse 3, that they're struggling with. As you put the pieces together, you realize these were the, the pride of the Corinthians was, it was manifesting itself in this sinful sort of peer-to-peer competition, right? I'm sure you guys don't do any of that in your hearts. Looking around, hey, I'm I'm, I'm much better looking than that person. (laughs) Or I I know more Bible than that person. I've been in Christ longer than that person. Or whatever the case is, however Petty pride manifests itself in that for the Corinthians, their pride was producing ungodly competition within the body of Christ where there should have been rather cooperation. And so Paul has set out to address that issue. And so far, really, he's done, he's done it in a backdoor fashion, hasn't he? To talk about his personal ministry and how he views himself and the rest of the apostles. But for the Corinthians, instead of humility and maturity producing unity, they were fighting one another. They were like a bunch of spiritual babies in their pride. They were trying to one-up one another, even using their ministry giftedness to do so. And so here in our passage, though, Paul now takes this problem head on. He no longer is going to, as we'll see here in a moment, he's no longer going to go about it in a backdoor fashion. I want you to, here's your outline just for tonight, just for these two verses, though. I want you to note, as we walk through this, I just want to draw out three problems of pride. I want want to show you from what Paul says here, three problems of pride. Um, I'll I'll just give them to you as we go. Notice the first part of verse 6. And and, and this first problem is simply this. Pride has a problem with correction. Pride is a problem with correction. Look at the first half of verse 6. He says, Now these things, brethren, I have figuratively applied to myself and Apollos for your sakes. Now, I have to explain this. 
um, and why I say that pride is a problem with correction, um, I'm drawing that from uh, the way Paul has been going about addressing this issue with the Corinthians, that he actually says um, point blank here. He says literally, I, I've, I've applied all that I've been saying so far. I've actually taken myself and Apollos and applied all of this to myself, but it really was for your sake. That's, that's really essentially what he's saying here in verse 6. In other words, he's saying, I've done so so far indirectly by applying those principles to myself and Apollos. You see, here we find out that all of the talk in the last chapter about his and Apollos' ministry, stretching back to verse 5 of chapter 3, just lay your eyes on it for a moment, you remember, where he first asked the question, what then is Apollos and what is Paul? All of that, from there all the way to here, was just so that the Corinthians could know that what Paul thought about his own life and ministry? No, it, it wasn't just for that. He wasn't just giving them a personal testimony of how he viewed his own ministry. We find out here in verse 6 that it was done, it was meant for their sake. He was essentially using himself and Apollos as an example to them that they might learn here we find out there was a purpose behind all of that personal language about his own philosophy of ministry, his own ministry. Paul says, these things I felt figuratively applied to myself and Apollos for your sake. It was really for their benefit. They were supposed to apply the same things to their own hearts and lives. In other words, for the last two chapters, he wasn't just telling them how he viewed himself just for the sake of sharing information. This was, this was how they should have been viewing themselves as well. All along, Paul was applying the imagery of, think about it, servants and farmhands to himself and Apollos, who simply planted and watered, who were considered nothing because God was the one who caused the growth, right? Chapter 3, verses 5 through 9. All along, while he was saying that, his intention was ultimately for the Corinthians also to see themselves that way. But listen, it's, it's much more palatable, isn't it, when Paul first applies it to himself rather than come right out and say, actually, you're nothing. It's Paul knew that it would be wiser in one sense to begin first by applying it to himself before he applied it directly to them. The same is true about verses 10 through 15 in chapter 3. All along, as Paul is speaking of himself as a construction worker in God's building, who is to be careful of what materials he was using to do the work of his ministry, his whole purpose was ultimately for the Corinthians to see themselves that way also. Same with last week. As Paul was 
describing himself and Apollos in verses 1 through 5 of chapter 4 as under rowers, you remember the language, as the lowest galley slaves and stewards whose only job was to be faithful. Listen, that whole time, Paul's intention was always for the Corinthians to view themselves that way also. You see, Paul wasn't just giving personal testimony, we find out here. In all of it, Paul was putting himself and Apollos out there as examples to be followed. In fact, he comes right out and says that point blank. Just look ahead to verse 16. He's going to say in a a moment, Therefore I exhort you, be imitators of me. Now, why do, I, why do I point that out? And why do I say, well, pride struggles with correction? Well, what's the implication here? Think about it. Why would Paul do it that way? I mean, I, I kind of alluded to it earlier. Why would Paul first figuratively apply these things to himself and Apollos, and then and only then come here and start to say, actually, I intended that for you also? Why would he do that? Think about that. Why figuratively apply these things to himself and Apollos first? Well, because, as I said earlier, it is much harder to hear something very directly applied to yourself first, isn't it? It's much easier to swallow if, if somebody else says, Hey, look, I'm nothing. I'm nobody. And then says, and so are you. As opposed to starting off with, you're nothing, you're nobody, leaving themselves out. This is, Paul was a shepherd. He knew how much more difficult it would have been for the Corinthians to swallow the truth if he just come out swinging, applying everything to them first and confronting them directly about their behavior without addressing himself at all. There's a There's great wisdom, you could say, in Paul saying first that he himself is nothing and an insignificant, expendable servant, an under-rower, a steward, and then applying that to the Corinthians as opposed to leading off with direct confrontation of a proud people. Because Paul knew, look, if the Corinthians struggled with pride, how do proud people react and respond to to confrontation and accusation. Not well, typically. I I think also, I think of the example of what the prophet Nathan does with King David. You remember in 2 Samuel chapter 12? Remember what what Nathan does? Does Nathan just call David out right out out of the gate? No. Uh, For his sin with Bathsheba? No, he, he first tells him a parable And he gets David to think objectively about the moral of the story because it hadn't been applied to his own heart yet. But then once David understood and was on board and was even incensed and angered by that lesson, it wasn't hard for Nathan then to convict him and apply the lesson to him personally. That's essentially what Paul is doing in this letter. He was speaking of himself and Apollos first. But now he applies the lesson to the Corinthians. Listen, 
All of that to say, proud people struggle, Paul knew, proud people struggle with correction. The Proverbs teach this, right? Proverbs 9, verses 7 and 8, He who corrects a scoffer gets dishonor for himself, and he who reproves a wicked man gets insults for himself. Do not reprove a scoffer, or he will hate you. Reprove a wise man, and he will love you. Look, the proud fool doesn't like to listen to counsel or instruction. It's very hard to teach a proud man. Proud people aren't teachable. So let me ask you this, just in this first point. I mean, take this as a diagnostic tool. Are you proud? A.K.A., are you teachable? How do you respond when you're confronted? Um, What is your typical gut reaction Do you find that people around you, closest to you, have to sort of tiptoe around and use every tactic and, you know, every careful maneuver, figuratively applying things to themselves first and then graciously trying to apply it to you? Do you find that that's the only way in which you'll receive instruction? Do you find even that when people do that and they confront you in a gracious manner that you get really upset about it? Like it's a good measure. It's a good test. Paul knows here that pride has a problem with confrontation and correction. And we need to learn from this. You know, the Corinthians... They weren't easy people to shepherd. That's why you have two letters to them. Actually, in total, you really have four letters written to the Corinthians. We only have two in our canon. They weren't teachable. They were proud. So pride, first problem, pride is a problem with uh, confrontation or correction. But notice second Second one comes in the second half of verse 6. We'll just say it this way. Pride has a problem with Scripture. Pride is a problem with the Word of God. This is an interesting connection to make here. But notice. Paul says, look, I figuratively applied these things to myself and to Apollos for your sake. But what was the lesson he was wanting to teach them, though? Notice. So that in us, you may learn, and here it is, not to exceed what is written, not to go beyond what is written, so that no one of you will become arrogant in behalf of one against the other. You see, the problem here, as we see in that last clause, especially, is clearly pride. The the language of becoming arrogant that result of becoming arrogant in behalf of one against another is the result of sin. It's the language of, as we said, sinful competition. As we've already stated, it's the pride of horizontal comparison that they were struggling with. The word for arrogant here means to be inflated or puffed up. Paul uses that term six times in this letter and only one other time outside of this book, in the book of Colossians. I mean, this, this is a massive problem, particularly for the Corinthians. 
we use similar language, don't we, when we speak of those who are proud, when we say something like someone is full of hot air, that's the kind of the idea, or, or that they have a big head or an inflated ego. It's the same picture, puffed up, arrogant. The Corinthians were clearly swollen with pride in behalf of one against the other. But did you notice what was at the heart of this pride of horizontal comparison? What is the first thing, the leading thing that Paul wanted them to learn? Notice the way he puts it here. The main problem is actually found in that first purpose clause, so that... In us, you may learn not to exceed what is written. That is so interesting. This is why I say, this is why I say pride has a problem with Scripture. You see, this is what Paul wanted the Corinthians to learn first. He wanted them to learn not to exceed what is written or what's in Scripture so that they would not become arrogant. You following Paul's logic there? In other words, we can conclude that for Paul, they were becoming arrogant because they were exceeding or going beyond what was written. Um, th- this, this is why I named the first problem, or this, this problem, the second problem, um, a problem with God's Word, with Scripture, because pride always has an issue here of going beyond what is written in Scripture. Um, that phrase, by the way, what is written, gagraptai, it's, it it's, it's, it's a phrase that Paul and the writers of Scripture often use for Scripture, um, and especially when they quote the Old Testament. You can see it even in this very letter back in chapter 1, verse 19. It is written. Chapter 1, verse 31, it is written. Chapter 2, verse 9, it is written. It's the same word and phrase. Paul will say it is written when he quotes Old Testament passages of Scripture. And so here... His concern for them, his primary concern for them, that he knows will lead to this arrogance and this puffing up, is that they not go beyond Scripture. See, pride always goes beyond Scripture. Those two things go hand in hand. Um, And by the way, the, the six passages of Scripture that Paul's already quoted here, in 1 Corinthians, all of them either directly or indirectly deal with this issue of pride and boasting. And so one, one commentator writes, the witness of Scripture places a strict limit on human pride. And so think about this. To go beyond and to exceed what is written in God's Word is to act like we're above God's standard. That's really what the concern is here for Paul. Uh, the word here for beyond or to exceed is is the the opposite you can think of of coming under. It's it's the opposite even of being in accord with or in agreement with. It's thinking and acting as if we know better than God. That is pride at its core. That will always lead to a self inflation. 
this is why you think about uh, Scripture describes humility in terms of submission to the truth, right? Just write Isaiah 66, 2. But to this one I will look to him who is humble and contrite of spirit and who trembles at my word. Proud people don't tremble at the word of God. Proud people go beyond the word of God. They believe themselves to be above the word of God. Pride at its core has a problem with Scripture. You know, the Corinthians were going beyond Scripture specifically by elevating human wisdom above God's wisdom, elevating one another in worldly ways. They had created their own standards to judge one another by, not the standards of Scripture, but ones fashioned to their own preferences and opinions, right? I like Paul because of this. I like I like Apollos because of this. I mean, we do that too sometimes, don't we? In a very worldly um, fashion that exceeds really what Scripture even gives to us as a standard by which we should um, evaluate faithfulness. We'll compare preachers to preachers based on mere style. We'll have our favorites. We'll go beyond Scripture in that regard because the Bible says nothing about whether a guy is fashionable when he's preaching or not or whether a church is a great website or not, or how many programs a church has, how many jokes a guy tells. Look, all of those things go beyond Scripture. And Paul says, for the Corinthians, that pride has a problem with the Word of God. Pride goes beyond in all of those ways. You see, Paul had already pointed out to them what the Bible did actually say. If you look back at chapter 1, verse 19, what had been written in Isaiah 29, verse 14, God would destroy the wisdom of the wise and the cleverness of the clever He would set aside, and yet they still fancied themselves wise and clever. They were going beyond what had been written. Paul had pointed out to them already in 1 Corinthians 1, 31, what had been written in Jeremiah 9.23, let him who boasts boast in the Lord, and yet they were still boasting in men. They were going beyond what had been written. Paul had pointed out to them in 1 Corinthians 3.19 and 20, what had been written in Job 5.13 and Psalm 94.11, that God is the one who catches the wise in their craftiness, and again the Lord knows the reasonings of the wise, that they're useless and yet they were still taking pride in their human wisdom. They were going beyond what had been written. And so Paul's main lesson to them here is, look, that they not exceed what the Word of God taught because that would only lead to human boasting. Guys, take it to the bank. Everywhere there is a disregard for God's Word and God's revelation, there's going to be pride. Anytime you blow by what God has clearly spoken, you're saying essentially, God, Lord, I know better than you. My opinion is above the Word of God. Isn't that an interesting connection just in terms of diagnosing pride in your own hearts? That pride goes hand in hand with a disregard for truth. That pride always seeks to go beyond 
revelation in some way. So you could ask this, are you proud? Where in your life have you disregarded the Word of God? Where have you argued with Scripture? Where have you believed that you're above the standard of God's Word? Where have you acted as though certain passages don't actually apply to you? Wherever those places are, there you'll find pride. And so we need to be careful that we don't imagine in any area of our life that we know better than the Lord. Let us not go beyond what is written and so become puffed up in our perspective. So that's the second problem. So the first is pride, of course, has a problem with correction. The second is pride has a problem with Scripture. Lastly, notice verse 7, just for tonight. Pride is a problem with grace. Pride is a problem with grace. Notice what Paul says in verse 7. For who regards you as superior? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? Listen, with three penetrating questions, Paul points out this this third problem behind the Corinthians' pride. That pride is as a problem, it really, it forgets the grace of God. That is so true, isn't it? I mean, and these, and these questions really expose that in us. See, pride somehow always forgets that grace sort of does away with all boasting, right? Grace levels the ground for everyone at the cross. Grace effectively eliminates any basis for our boasting, That is really essentially what these three questions um, draw out. Notice how Paul exposes this problem like with these three questions, like three arrows into the balloon of their pride. And the questions are who, what, and why. Notice first, he asks, who regards you as superior? Or, Or literally, who is distinguishing or separating you? Who's making distinctions of you. Um, the word here is related to the word we saw last time that is translated to examine or even to judge. But here, um, it, it has a different prefix to it. It shows up with a prefix that refers to a division of some kind. In other words, th- this is the kind of judging and examining that someone might do for the purpose of dividing or separating or distinguishing from another. That's 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 why your translation, probably at least some of yours, say, who regards you as superior? Because it has this idea then of distinguishing someone or something from among the rest, right? That's a standout person. And these people, not so much. And Paul's point here is that, really, with this question, his point is that none of you actually can judge one another to be superior over Others, because every one of you is a recipient of God's grace. Sure, you might have different gifts, but it's all the same in that they're all given by God. So who's going to make that distinction? When grace enters the picture, distinctions are erased, aren't they, in, in, in the Bible? 
in the gospel, in Christ. Isn't that true? The ground is truly level at the cross. Nobody, in light of the grace of God, is inherently distinguished above the rest. You see, pride forgets that, doesn't it? Pride imagines and begins to evaluate that these differences mean I'm better than you. Or you're worse than me. Notice the second question just reinforces this. He moves from who to what. Notice, what do you have that you did not receive? And the answer here, of course, is nothing. In other words, no one is superior to another because there's nothing that anyone has of value that wasn't given and gifted to them by the grace of God in the first place. Well, but isn't that true? Do you believe that? Or do you imagine somehow that that which is good in you, anything that you would praise or find, anything that someone might find of worth in you, that that was inherent to you and you could pat yourself on the back for that? Paul says, that's absurd. That's not the reasoning of Scripture. The answer to this question is nothing. You have nothing that wasn't given to you by the grace of God. James would put it this way. James chapter 1, verse 17. Every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. Clear enough there, right? Paul would say, Acts 17.25, to the Athenians that God is not served by human hands though he needed anything because, why? He himself gives to all people life and breath. Oh, and by the way, all things. Everything. You know, this is such a critical piece of theology that you have to have because it helps us Be humble. In fact, that's exactly what it did for John the Baptist. Um, It kept John the Baptist humble in John chapter 3. When the crowds, you remember, began to leave his ministry to flock after Jesus. You remember that? When he was asked about this by his disciples, what did he say? Listen, this is the theology that he had. Here's what he said. A man can receive nothing unless it has been given to him from heaven. And he'll end that section, right? He must increase, but I must decrease. Listen, this is critical for your theology of humility. You have to believe this, that nothing that you have that is of any worth is yours in and of yourself, it's all been gifted to you. It's all the result of God's grace. Um, just because of, for the sake of time, I'll just give you this reference. But you can go and read Deuteronomy 8. Israel knew this as well. At least they should have. They were warned by God through Moses in Deuteronomy 8 to not forget the Lord when they went into the promised land, you remember, and they, and, and, and they started enjoying all those things that they didn't actually work hard for. And he says then, he says, uh, verse 18, you shall remember the Lord your God 
for it is he who is giving you power to make wealth. I mean, that's the idea, isn't it? Everything has been given to you. Your life, your breadth, your ability to do anything good. If you're in Christ, not only that, then Paul in this very letter has already said, 1 Corinthians 1 verse 30, by His doing, you're in Christ who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. All of that was given to you too. And later, of course, as we said earlier, before we sang, he'll capture it this way, 1 Corinthians 15.10, by the grace of God, I am what I am. Dear Christian, next time you are tempted to boast about what you have in comparison to another, ask yourself this very question, what do you have that you did not receive by the gracious hand of God? Look, even they were doing this even with things good things like spiritual giftedness, right? They were, as we'll see later on in chapter uh, 13, they were actually even using the spiritual gifts that they'd been given as a means to puff themselves up with pride. And Paul has to say to them here, look, those are grace gifts. Those are grace gifts. That should deflate our pride pretty quickly. But don't stop there with those two questions. Go on and ask yourself then this last question as well. And if you did receive it, and the assumption here in the language is that you certainly did, then why do you boast as if you had not received it? You see, the Corinthians were acting as though what set them apart from each other actually did make them superior to each other because they'd forgotten that even what they did have was a result of God's grace. They didn't earn it. They didn't accomplish it of their own power. So where is boasting then? It's excluded. You know, Stuart Scott, he writes this of pride. It's And it's very appropriate to mention here, he says this, prideful people believe that they are or should be the source of what is good, right, and worthy of praise. They also believe that they by themselves are or should be the accomplisher of anything that is worthwhile to accomplish and that they should certainly be the benefactor of all things. In essence, this is insightful, he says, they're believing that all things should be from them through them and to them or for them. That's convicting, isn't it? That's pride. That's what you think when you're proud. That is what pride assumes. In short, pride forgets the grace of God. Christian, don't, don't ever forget the grace of God. We of all people should know and remember the grace of God and realize that all things are from Him the Father of Lights. And Calvin writes this just to conclude. If He says, No room is left for taking pride in ourselves when it is by God's grace we are what we are. One, one more commentator says, To boast implies human achievement and fails to recognize the free grace of God. So, those are just a few manifestations of pride. Um, pride is a problem with correction. 
Ask yourself tonight, how do you respond to correction? Pride is a problem with the authority of Scripture. Ask yourself, where in my life do I think I'm above the Word of God? Where have I gone beyond the Word of God? And pride is a problem with grace. Ask yourself if there are any, if there's anything good about yourself that you've failed to remember that, that, it's, that it was a gift given to you. But you've sort of tried to take credit for it as if you earned it. You know, in light of those three, we could just summarize this. We, we could say it the opposite way than this as we conclude that then humility is, uh, if pride has a problem with correction, humility uh, is teachable, right? If, if pride then, um, if a sign of pride is that it has a problem with the authority of Scripture, then humility is submissive to God's Word. And if pride has a problem with grace, then we can conclude that humility is always thankful to God for what we have. So I'll ask you again, are you proud or are you humble? Or better yet, where are you proud? And where do you, know, where do you need to grow in humility? Let's pray. Father, we are uh, convicted by this passage in every way because we are in ourselves proud people. We have often, we confess, uh, had an, have an inflated view of ourselves and, and, and seek to dethrone you. That is, Lord, help, help us to realize and to recognize that, that when we succumb to the sin of pride, whatever the manifestation is, that's ultimately what we're doing. Lord, forgive us. Lord, cause us to remember your grace. Make us teachable. Lord, help us uh, to be humble and to come under the authority of your word, to trust you and not ourselves and our own opinions. Lord, make us people who tremble at your word. And Father, we pray that um, you might seal these truths to our hearts uh, and that you might um, get much glory from uh, our renouncing of pride in our lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Well, sorry we only made it two verses. But as you can see...